I have mentioned before that one of my favorite people I've ever been blessed to, to know, one of Nina Hicks' favorite people too, was Richard Curry. He was one of my instructors at the Memphis School of Preaching many, many years ago. Then I was privileged to teach alongside him for a short period of time, many, many years later after we returned from Malaysia. And I loved him more than I can possibly put into words. I loved him for the kind of man he was. I loved him for what he taught me and what I was able to retain because, to a great extent, because of the way he taught and how he reviewed, and I've mentioned that before, and how he would come into class and how he would review from the former uh, previous class uh, what he had gone over. And he didn't just simply throw out, uh, you know, questions. He asked you specifically. And you knew you were going to be asked specific questions by name. And so you reviewed and you prepared and you retained as a result of that reminder, constant reminder. And that's how we begin our study tonight of Second Peter as we continue this expository series. We look at what Peter had to say about the value of reminding. And Richard Curry understood the value of, of review, the value of reminding. And the Apostle Peter understood that as well. And so as we begin with verse 12 of 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. We'll stop there and look at these uh, initial verses, and hopefully, the Lord willing, continue through the end of the chapter tonight. But he begins uh, this particular segment of his epistle, the second epistle, by saying, for this reason. Well, that takes us back to what he has just concluded, or just uh, said, or just written, rather. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has gone over the great Christian graces, as we uh, call them, from verse 5 through verse, uh, verse 10, and then tells his readers, and thus us for all time, his readers for all time, that if indeed we will obey the gospel and then add to our lives these beautiful Christian graces, that we can anticipate that abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom, that is, heaven itself. We are in the kingdom now, the kingdom of God being the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But ultimately, as we have often said, the Lord is coming back, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, when he puts down all rule, all authority, and all power, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. It will not become another kingdom. It will simply enter its eternal phase, its heavenly phase. And if we are to anticipate an abundant entrance into the heavenly phase, of the kingdom which now exists and of which we're privileged to be a part if we are faithful children of God being added to that kingdom by obedience to the gospel, then we're going to have to apply ourselves to those things that Peter has 
enumerated already in these great Christian graces, and we are going to need to be reminded of certain things. And that's the emphasis that he gives here in verse 12. I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, which points out the importance of being reminded, and which tells us that Satan is always at work to distract us and to cause us to forget what we have been taught. It is only through constant vigilance that we are going to be able to be successful in living the kind of life that will enable us to enjoy that abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. Christianity cannot be a casual endeavor. It takes a careful and diligent endeavor for us to avoid the snares that Satan sets in our path, for us to defeat Satan and all of his devices, we are going to need to be reminded, as Peter reminds us here, of the importance of being diligent in our study of the Word of God and our application of that Word to our lives, because Satan does not give up. Now, that's not to say that we cannot defeat him, resist the devil and he will flee from you, but that is not to say, as Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us those words, that he's not going to ever come back. Uh, indeed, the Lord, remember, was tempted 40 days, and after 40 days and 40 nights, he was tempted, and one of the accounts, Luke's account, I believe, tells us that he departed from him for a season. The Lord Jesus Christ had to withstand uh, Satan throughout his earthly existence. And so must we. How will we be successful in withstanding Satan? Because he is not to be taken lightly. He is not, he is not an enemy who is not a formidable enemy. He is indeed a, a formidable enemy. And so, a formidable enemy. So we must, uh, we must uh, resist him constantly. And in order to resist him, we must be reminded constantly of certain things. What things? These things. The things that are written, obviously. For this reason, I will not be negligent. You know, I can stop right there, and I alluded to something that, that Steve Pell said recently about the thought of serving as an elder over the flock of God just pins him to the wall. Well, uh, as one who's serving as an elder now, I certainly concur with, uh, with that statement, but also as one who is a preacher of the gospel, uh, I am pinned to the wall, if you will, by the responsibility that one has as a proclaimer of the Word of God. And I cannot be negligent. As Peter said, I will not be negligent. Peter as a preacher, but Peter as an apostle. Uh, obviously, we don't have apostles today, but we do have preachers, and preachers must not be negligent. Acts 20, verse 27, I'm reminded of what the apostle Paul rehearsed when he rehearsed his work with the uh, Ephesian elders when he called them to himself there at Miletus, and he said, I, I did not shun to declare unto you the whole counsel of God, Acts 20 and verse 27. And any proclaimer of the word of God must have that same determination that he will not shun to declare the whole counsel of God, that he will present it in love, that he will present it with compassion, but present it without compromise, and certainly not simply present that which is palatable or popular, but that which is pure and complete in terms of the whole counsel of God. 
That's the responsibility that gospel preachers have. And really, if you think about it, and you should think of it this way, it's the responsibility that every child of God has. Because all of us are charged with the responsibility of carrying out the Great Commission. And wherever we go, we're to go with the gospel. And if we go with the gospel, we're to go with all the gospel, not just a part of it. And we are not to seek to be popular or pleasing to men as children of God, but we are to be compassionate but uncompromising in the way we live and in the way we tell others about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We dare not be negligent. And Peter says, I will not be negligent to remind you of these things, though you what? Though you know and are established in the present truth. Now think about that statement. You know and are established in the singular present truth. Take the word know. Take the word thee. Take the word truth. You will know. You do know, he affirms. You do know the truth. Remember what Jesus said in John 8, 32? You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And we emphasize that because we live in a time, tragically, when a myriad of people, myriads of people are telling us that we simply cannot know anything, absolutely, let alone can we know that we know this book is what it claims to be. We can know the truth. The truth is clearly set forth in the New Testament, in the Word of God as a whole, and we can know the truth. And not only are we to come to know it, but we are to be established in that truth, grounded in that truth. How can we be grounded in that truth? By being reminded constantly of those things that we need to be reminded of so that we do not let them slip. I've asked before, do you not know personally, probably in your own experience, those whom you thought were tremendously well grounded in the truth, preachers of the gospel, elders in the church, others who had been in the kingdom for years and years who have apostatized and have turned their backs upon the truth. They knew it. They knew it was the truth, I would assume. At least they acted as though they did, and yet ultimately they turned away from it, which simply tells us again how important it is, as Peter reminds us here, to be reminded of those things, to be constantly vigil, and to not allow Satan to slip in in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And then he says in verse 13, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, as the new King James renders it, tabernacle, as the King James says, as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by reminding you. Again, the importance of reminding you. Well, when he says as long as I am in this tent or this tabernacle, he's talking about his body. He's talking about being in a temporary dwelling place. I'm in this tent. The tent is a temporary dwelling place. The tabernacle uh, in the Old Testament was a temporary dwelling place where God met with his people. But ultimately, the temple became that permanent place when they were situated in the land of Canaan that the Lord had promised them. And after he had led them in, they were there in that more permanent place. And of course, the dwelling place where God meets his people today is the church, not a building, but a body, a spiritual body of people. But I am in this tent. It's a temporary home for what? For my spirit. And ultimately, my spirit is going to leave this tent. And that's what he says in verse 14. 
knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Now notice the word shortly is most likely better translated in the American Standard Translation where swiftly uh, is used. And uh, it's the same word that is translated swift over in 2 Peter 2, uh, verse 1 in the New King James, who uh, talking about false prophets who bring on themselves swift destruction. Same idea here, rather than shortly, swiftly would be, I think, the better translation, because what he's saying is that my tent, putting off my tent, is going to come swiftly. I think the idea he's conveying here that it's going to come suddenly. It's going to come swiftly. Now, with that having been said, Peter was an older man, and surely as an older man, he also knew that it couldn't be a very long time either before he would put off his tent. But it would come with suddenness and swiftness is the idea. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Now, what is he talking about? Well, if we go back to John 21, we know what he's talking about because it was there that there was that exchange between the Lord and Peter. And in verses 18 and 19 of John chapter 21, the Lord said this to Peter, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And then verse 19 gives this explanation. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now, we've talked about the significance of that before. Think about it. The Lord says to Peter, Peter, when you're old, somebody is going to take you where you do not want to go, and they're going to kill you. We know he talked about death because verse 19 says, This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. Peter was told by the Lord, You will die for me. And then he was told immediately thereafter by the Lord, Now follow me. How many of us, if we were in that same situation and were told, You're going to die for me, now follow me, would have followed? Hopefully all of us. Peter did, to his credit, and he never forgot those words, as is clearly evident from his statement right here. He lived his life from that day forward, knowing full well that he was going to die for the cause of Christ, and yet he never turned his back on the Lord. Oh, yes, he had denied him earlier three times, but when he repented, he was committed so committed that knowing he was going to die a martyr's death, not a peaceful death upon his pillow in his sleep, but a martyr's death, and knowing what that no doubt entailed, and that it was not going to be pleasant, but extremely painful most likely, nonetheless, he followed the Lord, and he remembered what he had been told. If we knew living the lives that we live for Christ, that that life was ultimately going to end in a very painful martyr's death. Would we live that life nonetheless? We should be able to say yes, and we can if we will live 
with the kind of dedication to this word that Peter, right here in this text, is telling us we need to have. And if we will not let Satan distract us and destroy us, but will always understand the importance of living the kind of life here that we should live, even if it should end in a martyr's death. So what? So what when compared to what lies beyond? That's what Peter knew. That's what Peter understood. And that's what every child of God must understand. It may be that we will die in our sleep peacefully and painlessly. It may be otherwise. But regardless, we must die in Christ and determine to live for him in order to die in him. I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Verse 15, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. I'm going to make sure you always have a reminder, and he did, didn't he? And we do. We have it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that word decease is an interesting word. It is literally after my exodus. After my exodus. And it simply tells us that death, as James makes abundantly clear, and as this text also tells us, death is simply the separation of the spirit from the body. And when this body dies, the spirit does not, but returns uh, to paradise, hopefully, if we've lived as we should, and ultimately heaven. And so, indeed, it is important for us to live in constant faithfulness, having been reminded by texts such as the one we're studying tonight of the importance of doing so. Now, notice something in verse 16, beginning. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God, the Father, honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This is a reference to what we commonly call the transfiguration. When Christ was transfigured and his clothing shined brighter than the noonday sun. And when Moses and Elijah appeared with him, talking with him. And the account is in Matthew chapter 17 and Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9. And we get some additional information by putting all these accounts together. For example, in Luke's account of the transfiguration, his is the only account that tells us what they were talking about. Matthew's account just says they talked. Mark's account just says they talked. But Luke says they talked about the impending death that Christ was going to die for the sins of the world. And what a glorious scene that was. Oh, and it made an impression on Peter. In fact, at that time he said, Lord, if it, if it pleases you and if you wish, let's make three tabernacles here, one for, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then the voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Clearly saying... From God the Father, the excellent glory, as he is called here in verse 17, that not the law of Moses, 
represented by Moses' presence, not the prophets represented by Elijah, but the Son of God. It would be his word that would take precedence over everything. The culmination of God's plan of salvation in the word of Christ through the sacrifice of Christ. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Hear him. And Peter says, we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. The Mount of Transfiguration, as it is called. Where was it? We do not know. Prior to this, just prior to this occurrence of the Transfiguration, the Lord was near Mount Hermon. And so many think that Mount Hermon was the location where the Transfiguration scene took place. Others say it was Mount Tabor. We simply do not know, don't have to know. But we do know, we do know the kind of impact it had on Peter and James and John, who were there and privileged to witness this sight. And verses 19 through 21 make that abundantly clear. He says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 19, so we have the prophetic word confirmed. What's he saying? I believe it's clear that he's saying that the prophetic word, the word of the prophets, which you have, we have some confirmation that that word is truly the word of the prophets, that that is the word of God because of what we saw in that transfiguration scene. We have that prophetic word confirmed because we saw that which was confirmation that the prophets indeed spoke of the one who would take precedence over the law of Moses. That they did write of the ones, the one who would take precedence, precedence over the prophets themselves, who would be the fulfillment of prophecy. In other words, we have miraculous confirmation of that prophetic word. It's made more sure, as some translations say, the sure word of prophecy. We have seen something that confirmed it to us and I'm relating it to you and you have a record of it in the word of God that this confirmation is true because we were eyewitnesses of it. We saw it. We saw it. And as we think about that confirmation, if that's what Peter is saying here, and I believe it is, then it's simply reinforces the whole purpose of any miraculous event that we have recorded for us in Scripture. What was the purpose of those miraculous events? To confirm the Word. But now we read of those miraculous events and they confirm for us this Word. They're not continually performed today, as we've often said, but they are recorded. Remember John 20, 30, and 31. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not what? Written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you might have life in his name. What's he saying here? He's saying, here's some more confirmation for you. Here's some more confirmation. Peter and 
Peter is saying that James and John and I, we saw, we heard the voice. We saw the transfigured Christ. And so this is a further confirmation that the prophets who wrote of him and prophesied of his coming as the Messiah were writing by the inspiration of God. And he further says that in the verses that we have just read. But before we get to those verses, beginning at verse 20, notice he says, which you do well to do what? Heed. In other words, this word, the word of the prophets, the word of God is indeed from God. It has been confirmed. And because it has, you would do well to heed that word. And that word heed is not a casual observance of it, but a very careful consideration of that word. And what is that word like? He says, as a light that shines in a dark place. That word is like a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star, or the day star, as the King James says. I think a reference there to Christ rises in your hearts. In other words, the prophets prophesied of the morning star, Christ, who would come and through his word he would light up a world that was squalid and dark and filthy with sin, and yet as that word, that light of the gospel came into that darkened world, it brought light and life to a world that had been darkened by sin. Again, it shows the power, does it not, of the word of God to bring light to darkness. And what else is needed? Nothing else at all. The all-sufficient, all-powerful word of God. And thus he further says then in verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. The word interpretation meaning origin or explanation. In other words, the prophets did not originate their writings in their own minds. That's not where it originated. It originated with God. And how was it processed or communicated to these men? Verse 21 explains it. For prophecy never came by the will of man, never by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. There it is. Holy men, 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 like us. Men spoke, but not of their own origin, not of their own will, but as they were what? Moved, and the word moved is the idea of bearing something along. They were borne along like a, a sailing vessel before the wind. The Holy Spirit bore them along, carried them along, and enabled them to speak the very words that God wanted them to speak. It's a similar statement, reinforcing statement over in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11 and, verses 11 and 12. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, now let's go back to verse 10, of this salvation the prophets have inquired, talking about the salvation of your souls in 1 Peter 1, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them, 
was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them, these prophets, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you, listen to it, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. Those statements in 1 Peter 1 are very similar to the statement here in 2 Peter 1.21. These men were born along, carried along as it were in their work by the Holy Spirit who inspired them to reveal the word of God. It's like David in 2 Samuel 23.2 said, The Spirit spoke by me. The Spirit spoke by me. Men spoke. But they spoke not what they had originated in their minds. They spoke what was in the mind of God and was revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we can be fully assured that what I hold in my hand in proper translation is truly the Word of God Almighty as it was intended to be delivered to man, the process being described so beautifully right here in this last verse. Of this chapter. Therefore, when I say to you tonight as we close, to become a Christian, you must believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I can back that up with the Word of God that was delivered by the Holy Spirit to inspired men. The words of Jesus Himself believe that I am He, or you will die in your sins. John 8 24. Those are the words of Christ that have been preserved on the pages of the New Testament, delivered by the Holy Spirit to men who wrote them down. You must repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. And again at verse 5, those are the words of Christ, again given by the Holy Spirit to men who wrote them down. Repent or perish, Luke 13, 3. Confess me and I'll confess you before men, Matthew 10, 32. Deny me and I will deny you, the following verse tells us. And yes, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Those are the words as the Holy Spirit revealed them to Mark, who recorded them in Mark 16, 16. And the Holy Spirit did not reveal he who believes will be saved and then should be baptized. The Holy Spirit revealed he who believes and is baptized will be saved. That's how the Lord spoke it. That's how the Holy Spirit inspired men to record it. And therefore we can know that we know that we know that we know, as the late Franklin Camp used to say, and on he would go. And aren't you glad we can? But do you know him tonight? You can. By obedience to the simple plan we've just outlined, knowing that it is truly from God. And if you need to come home to your first love as one who's wandered away and no longer serves as you know you should, one who has not heeded the reminders of Scripture and has allowed Satan to enter once again and to distract you and move you away from the hope that you once enjoyed, come home as we stand to sing to encourage you.